there as well. Uh, So Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It's our practice to stand when we read God's Word. Yes, this is one of those moments where it'll take you longer to do the standing and the sitting than the actual reading, but that's okay. If you're able, uh, let's stand as we read Romans 8, just verse um, 28. I should probably be on the right page. And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. Uh, More importantly, that you would comfort us, that we would understand the work of God in our lives and in his creation, and that that would drive us to uh, greater confidence in your work uh, and greater comfort for our own lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, you, we all have uh, those times in life, those moments when um, we watch the news or uh, we look at uh, events in our own Life, we um, see the pains and struggles of loved ones. We uh, go through uh, difficult or or challenging uh, struggles in our life. We we hear about uh, events in other places around the globe, and we ask the question, "Why? Why am I going through this? Why am I struggling with that? Why did that happen to have have to happen?" To them, why am I going through this? Why this hardship? What is, what's the reason for all of this in my life? In fact, many people around us, maybe not so much in this room, but many people around us will use hardship and struggle and difficulty as evidence for the fact that God doesn't exist. Uh, the logic makes sense to them, right? If God is powerful and if God is loving, then I wouldn't be going through this, and yet I am. This struggle is real. And so either God doesn't love people, and that's not a God I care to to worship, or He's not powerful at all. And so what kind of a God is that? So clearly God doesn't exist. That's their argument. That's their logic. They, They take the struggles and difficulties and pains of this life and say, well, these exist, therefore God can't, possibly exist. He can't do anything about them or He would. But is that what Scripture says? Is that actually what Scripture teaches us about uh, God's work and power and authority over His creation, over the events of our own lives? Are they really outside of God's hand? Are they really outside of God's control? Are they really outside of His knowledge for that matter? Or are they very much in His control and here at His command? That's what Scripture means. when That's what we mean when we talk about this doctrine of God's providence. First, how do we define Providence. We, we read a minute ago in, in Romans 8, verse 28. It's a verse you know. Many of you go there for comfort in trials. 
And, and you run there thinking, this verse tells me that God's working all things together for good. And, and I know that He knows what's going on. I know that He knows my struggle. I know that He cares about my struggle. And I know it's very much in His hand. What do I make of the pain of divorce, of children who are are wayward and wandering from Scripture, of parents who are difficult or even abusive, work, cancer, whatever story, whatever report you get in your life, what do I make of that? How is God at work here? Because those things don't feel good. That word in Romans 8, He's good. I mean, these things don't feel good to me. Two things we learn already from that verse. If we think about it for for even just sort of half a second, that God is at work uh, working all things together for good. It means two things. One, it means that God has a plan. That God absolutely knows not just what's going on, but He knows what's coming and He's devised that plan and He's at work making sure that plan happens. That verse tells us that God has a plan. He's using the struggles and difficulties of this life for a reason to accomplish some purpose. Incidentally, the, the word providence means to see before. Provideo, to, to see beforehand. God has a plan. He's, he set this plan from before the foundation of the world. Not only does He have a plan, but it also means that He has power. If He's working things out in a certain way in order to accomplish His plan, then it must mean He has power over everything in His creation. If he's, if he's working to accomplish a goal, if He's working to accomplish this plan, then He must be able to make that plan come about. He has not only a plan, but He also has the power to see that plan fulfilled. That's what we said just a few minutes ago, by the way, in our affirmation of faith. When we asked the question, what, is, what are God's works of providence? God's works, you can look there in your bulletin if you need it. God's works of providence are most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. The Bible teaches us that God is orchestrating the events of this world to bring about His purpose, His plan, His holy and wise plan. He's upholding everything that He made. He's maintaining everything that He made. And He's orchestrating the events of creation, the events of life to bring about His purposes. In other words, God is at work in His world. Incidentally, this is kind of a big deal here at Grace Covenant. This is is kind of a big deal for the church, right? Right? When we say God is at work, we're saying, wait, I can't convert people. I can't make people get converted and trust in Christ. 
That's something only God can do. God's at work. I can't muster the strength and the energy to convince someone that they need Christ. Only God can do that. God is at work. Be encouraged. Be comforted. God's at work in His creation. The heart of this doctrine is that God has a plan and He's at work making that plan happen. Now let's illustrate that from the book of Ruth. Three sort of specific examples uh, as we've finished this series in uh, this short book. Um, And I'm, I'm sure, I hope, I trust, I'm confident, I think, that I called attention to this from time to time as we were were preaching through um, really whole chapters of Ruth at a a given time. The first place we see this in Ruth is in the provision of food. Look at Ruth chapter 1. The book begins, and Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their sons are in Moab. They're living in a foreign uh, country. They're living among people who worship idols, who worship false gods. In fact, their sons have married Moabite women uh, and are there in Moab. And they were there for uh, ten years, uh, we're told. But why were they there? Why did they go to Moab? Well, look at how Ruth begins. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Naomi and Elimelech and their sons left Israel to go to Moab because there was a famine in Israel. There was a famine back in Bethlehem. There was no food. There was nothing to eat. So they left. And I've already told you, we said this week one, uh, I'm convinced that that was a mistake. I'm convinced that it was, was wrong for them to leave the place of God's promised presence and provision among God's people to seek the, the provision of foreigners, to seek the, the help of outsiders. I, I know there, there are people that sort of say, well, no, that's not necessarily true. That's fine. I've told you, I've read commentaries who took exact opposite viewpoints and they're written by men I would gladly have preach right here at Grace Covenant. But to me, what's the good in food for the stomach if you have to neglect the food for the soul in order to get it? And yet, it certainly was wrong for their sons to marry foreign women. They were commanded to marry only Israelites, only in the Lord. And instead, they took these Moabite women as their wives. In other words, here's one of the struggles for us in this doctrine of God's providence. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign over everything. And we're going to see that this was all orchestrated by God Himself. But it also teaches us that we are responsible for our actions. God is not the author of sin and He doesn't cause us to sin. I don't know how those things hold together always. We may not understand how those two things can both be true, but Scripture scripture clearly teaches 
that they're true. Thankfully, the truth of Scripture doesn't depend on my understanding. Naomi and her family are in Moab because there's no food. And ten years later, after Elimelech and and uh, Naomi's sons have died, Naomi returns to go home. And and in verse 10, we're told, uh, or verse 6, we're told she's leaving to go back to Israel. Why? Why the sudden change of thought? Well, we're told in verse 6, she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited His people and given them food. In other words, the famine's over. There's now food back home in Bethlehem, back home in Israel. And so they're now going to go back because there's food there. So now they can return safely and expect to have something to eat. But did you notice the writer of Ruth made clear to us the Lord caused the food. The Lord has caused this barley harvest. The writer attributes this sudden change of mind and attitude in Naomi to this, what seems to be almost a sudden blessing of food back in Israel. It's God's hand of providence. He has provided food for His people. Turn to Psalm 104. Psalm 104, we get this uh, illustrated yet again. Uh, The psalmist writes in Psalm 104, verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are Your works! In wisdom have You made them all. The earth is full of Your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan which You formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. In other words, the psalmist tells us that everyone and everything that God has made depends on Him for their food. Incidentally, Do you realize? Think about that for half a second. Think of all the minute details God has to care about and bring about in order to make that happen. The whale finds creel because God put it there. Krill. The words are krill. Sorry, as soon as I said krill, I had... The movie, you know, Finding Nemo running through my head. Go watch Finding Nemo. The creel's the basket that you put your... Never mind. But you think about the, the, the details that God has to be doing to cause that seed to land in that dirt that's good enough to receive that seed and that it would actually open up right and roots would begin to grow and, and a, a shoot would come up and actually produce fruit. I mean, those are... A lot of details that God actually is caring about to produce food for Leviathan. For the people on the ships. For the sea creatures. For all that He has made. 
Everything depends on God for their food. By the way, this has to mean... Why was the famine in Israel in the first place? Maybe maybe God was absent. Maybe God had gone somewhere else. Maybe God was busy down in Africa somewhere. Or maybe He was had taken a trip to, to Ireland. Maybe He was off in the east somewhere doing something different and He missed. He wasn't paying attention to the food in Israel. That can't possibly be it. Maybe the famine came because something bad happened and and God just couldn't do anything about it at all. That can't possibly be it. If we take the food from God, we have to take the famine from Him as well. God provides food for His people. Ruth illustrates for us that God provides food for His people. The psalmist tells us clearly. There's a, a second problem in Ruth that has to be overcome that that God has to get involved in, and that's the problem of marriage, or in Ruth's case, the lack thereof. I didn't mention this before, I should have, but um, the book of Ruth, chapters 1 and 4, they're sort of like the drone camera angle, up high looking down. Chapters 2 and 3, the camera drops to sort of field level. And, and you're actually involved in their lives. You get, you get a lot more in chapters 1 and 4 of, of God's perspective and in chapters 2 and 3 of, of Naomi and Ruth's perspective, of man's perspective. That's why, by the way, the writer writes in Ruth 2, verse 3. Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened... To come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Of all the places Ruth could have gone, of all the fields, of all the farmers, of all the places that were harvesting barley at that very moment, because they got back at the, at the beginning of barley harvest, of all the places she could have ended up, she just happened to end up in the part of the field belonging to Boaz. That's human language. I just happened to get caught by that red light, which meant I wasn't in the wreck that I came up on you know, a few minutes later. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I just happened, as luck would have it, that's the language we use. Surely when we use that language, we're using just human language, recognizing that from God's perspective, He was bringing the whole thing about. He was making it all happen. He was at work in and through all of it. It makes you wonder, I mean, did did you think about this when we read Ruth? What if she had ended up in the part of the field belonging to the other Redeemer, the closer Redeemer? Then what? Would he have known And understood, oh wait, this is my job. I have this Redeemer option. I'm not interested. Hey, Boaz, come here a second. I need you to meet somebody. Or would he have dropped it? Where would the book of Ruth be if she had ended up in the wrong field? We have to ask that kind of question. The the writer of Ruth wants us to recognize that from a human perspective, it seems like just happened. But God's orchestrating every bit of it. For that matter, Jesus tells us in 
Matthew 10, that a sparrow, two sparrows sold for a penny. A sparrow is worth half a cent. And when one falls to the ground, it does so under the Father's care. He says, a sparrow doesn't fall from the sky apart from the Father. Or for that matter, and this is easier for some than for others, Jesus goes on to say that every hair on your head is counted by God. The writer says, she just happened to end up in that field. When we say, I just happened to be there. I just happened to miss that light. I just happened. Surely what we really mean is God's at work. By God's sovereign hand, I missed. I didn't make it. And the whole rest of the book of Ruth unfolds for us this marriage, this, this the answer to the problem of, of Ruth not having a husband. And you know, we read Ruth in minutes. Chapters 2 and 3, 4 take months. We would do well to remember that if we were in Ruth's shoes, we would be anxious. We would be impatient. We would be wondering why this is taking so long. Which, by the way, leads us to the third hurdle in the book of Ruth that God has to, to overcome here. And that's the problem of, of children or lack thereof in Ruth's case. You notice at the end of Ruth chapter 4, there's a genealogy. It's a genealogy that ends with David. It appears that the book of Ruth is actually probably written in David's time and written uh, to um, legitimize David as king of Israel. It's, it's saying, look, he has the right to be on this throne because here's his, his ancestry. Here's his heritage. And you find this list of children, of descendants. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. Ruth has her Redeemer. But what about the future of the family? And there's your answer at the end of Ruth 4. The future of the family looks like Boaz actually having a son who has a son who has a son named David, who, by the way, is the greatest king Israel has known up to this point. There's been a pattern in Ruth, by the way. God provides uh, for his people, but he also provides overwhelmingly and frequently surprisingly. Now, there had been a prayer that, that, that Boaz and Ruth would be like uh, Rachel and Leah. And, and I don't know that Ruth had 12 sons. I, have no, I don't know that. We don't, we don't get that information. But we do know that the two greatest kings of Israel ever are descendants of Ruth. One of them right here at the end of Ruth 4, David. The other, Matthew 1 tells us, 
is Jesus. In other words, Ruth's lack of a son wasn't just Ruth's problem. It was the world's problem. Because back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promised that the seed of the woman would come and destroy the seed of the serpent. That fulfillment hangs in the balance as we read Ruth. He needed for Elimelech and Naomi to go to Moab. He needed for Malon to marry this woman, Ruth. He needed for Elimelech and Malon and Kilion to die in Moab. And he needed for the, the, the food, to, the barley to regrow in Israel so that, that uh, Naomi and Ruth would go back. And he needed Ruth to end up in Boaz's field. And he needed Boaz to, to introduce himself to her and to pursue the fulfillment of the promise so that you and I might have a Savior. You know, we frequently think we're going to get all the answers we need in the next few minutes. Certainly by the end of the week, I'll have all the answers. Ruth really only saw a partial fulfillment of what was going on. As far as we know, she had one son. She doesn't live to see the birth of Christ. Her great, 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 great however many it is, grandson according to the flesh. In other words, God actually uses this marriage with an outsider to bring about His purposes, not just for Ruth, but for us. He's orchestrating a plan far greater than Ruth would even live to see. Let me sort of by way of application, let me just sort of look at God's providence today. Just three quick sort of questions. The first, why do we have, why is the doctrine of God's providence so difficult for us? I'm reminded of um, a poem that as far as I know is, is uh, anonymous, although it's frequently attributed to Corey ten Boom. Perhaps you know this poem. My life is but a weaving between the Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Now, I've not done much weaving, sewing, stitching. I will use the wrong term, and I apologize to those of you that know the right term. Just smile and nod, humor me. I know this. Particularly if you're trying to like cross-stitch something. You know, there's, there's a pattern showing up on one side. And underneath, unless you're really careful and actually care about the stuff, it's just a jumbled mess. There's string and stitches and stuff going every which way. and That's the part we see. It looks like a jumbled mess. She says, I, I forget that he sees the side that I don't see. I see the jumbled mess side. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. You have to wonder, when exactly 
Is the loom silent? And when do the shuttles cease to fly? You know, that might not be my death. That might be the new creation. In other words, I may not get answers until we live in the new creation. We may not get all the answers even then. But we may look back at that point and go, oh, now I see these dark threads are actually accomplishing something generations after me. We, have to, would do, we would do well to remember that when we say God is at work, yes, He's at work in our lives. Yes, He's at work conforming us more and more into the image of Christ. But He's also orchestrating a plan that's far greater than you and I will even live to see. We tend to see our struggles. We tend to see our needs. Naomi returns empty and bitter. And yet the Bible tells us that even through those difficulties, God is at work weaving together something we may not even live to know about. A second sort of application of this doctrine of providence is this. Everyone's a Calvinist on their knees. When you pray for someone's salvation, we've said this before, by the way, there are two things we do that that prove we're not in control and that God is. Every time you sleep and every time you pray, you admit, I can't. I'm not God. When we pray for the salvation of others, even people who you know, would balk at this idea of Calvinism, predestination, that's not a real thing. Election, that's not true. But yet they pray for the salvation of others. We're admitting that God is at work. We're admitting that we need God to change hard hearts and replace them with a heart of flesh that they might embrace Christ. And finally, how do you respond to uh, dark providences? How do you respond to to difficulty in your life? You know, it's tempting, I, I think, at sometimes to either dismiss it as, as, well, that's just God. I mean, that's just the devil. I mean, this, this is going on in my life just because that's the devil doing this. But I'm going to praise God anyhow. Or, or to dismiss it as just a run of bad luck. But did you notice the way Naomi speaks in Ruth chapter 1? She's not quite so flippant. Because in verses 19 to 21... The two of them went on, that's the Naomi and Ruth, until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? The women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord, Yahweh, has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Yes, she's bitter. Yes, she's struggling. But she's honest about her condition. And she recognizes that the good and the bad, the easy and the difficult, both come from the hand of God. Far greater to be empty and in God's hands than full and outside of them. The, psalm, the psalms are, are honest. They give us this balance of trust in God's sovereignty and yet crying out for help at the same time. There's Job who says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of 
the Lord. God is building His kingdom in us and through us, and He uses these dark, difficult providences in our lives to draw us closer to Him, to equip us to to love and serve others, to cause us to depend more fully on Him, to deepen and strengthen our faith. You know, talk about dark providences. You have to consider the cross at that point, right? As Jesus is hanging, the greater perfect Boaz is hanging on the tree, suffering and bleeding so that He might redeem His people. Our kinsman redeemer died there. Do you remember what He, what he did with His pain and His suffering? He fully recognized He was not suffering at the hands of bad luck or even at the hands of the Romans or even at the hands of the Jews, but he was drinking the cup of God's wrath because that's what our sin deserves. Even to the point that he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was enduring the wrath and curse of God for us. What does every sin deserve? The wrath and curse of God. Aren't you grateful for those dark providences in Jesus' life? They weren't a surprise to Him. But the, the darkness and the difficulty of enduring the pain and the suffering of the cross on our behalf to redeem us, to accomplish a plan set in motion before the foundation of the world, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, to bring us to saving faith in Christ. Oh, that we might learn to see His sovereign hand in our dark providences. That we would use them even to to deepen our trust and confidence in His power, in His planning, and in His love for us. Let's pray together.